The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. All right. Hey, good evening, church. Oh, man, so awesome to worship, like Jimmy said. Man, there's something just powerful about worship, and there's times it's easy to enter in, and there's times we have to press in, but when we press in, it is always worth it. When it's easy, it's always worth it. Um, because God is always worth it. Amen? Amen. Hey, if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5, and the title of uh, the message this evening is The Commander's Commander. The Commander's Commander, and we come to a very famous scene in the book of Joshua, for that matter, in the entirety of the Bible. One of my favorite scenes, I taught on this a couple of weeks, uh, excuse me, a couple of years back when we did a series called Daring to Draw Near. Uh, men and women who had these radical personal encounters physically with God. Well, tonight we see one of those encounters of Joshua when he meets the ultimate commander. Well, Joshua chapter 5, Joshua chapter 5, pick up with me verse 13, and we're going to read into a few verses of chapter 6. Pastor Daniel is going to do the bulk of chapter 6 next week, but I'm going to sneak peek a little bit into his section. Verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Verse 14, And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and he worshiped. And he said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once, as you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when you make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you to be gathered out here. Uh, hear what we call on Solomon's porch, and we are mindful of your first followers who were gathered literally on what was called Solomon's porch. They gathered, they gathered to study the, the apostles' doctrine, and that's what we're doing tonight, to study the apostles' doctrine and teaching, to study the word of God. Uh, but not just to study it intellectually, Lord, that it would change and transform our hearts and lives like you did 2,000 years ago through a group of people who were filled with your spirit, who studied your word, who said, I want to live a life that looks like your word. We want to live a life like Joshua. We want to live a life like, like Paul and Peter and John and Mary and all the rest, Lord. We want our lives to be filled with you and more of you, Jesus. We want to fall deeply, deeply in love with you. So challenge us tonight, Jesus, as Savior and as Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Every parent eventually encounters this, what uh, we all went through, but every parent eventually encounters the battle, the struggle for who is in control, right? Every parent knows this. Uh, eventually, when your kid turns two, the terrible twos, or for us, we discovered it was the threes, we thought, terrible twos, and twos weren't so bad. We're like, oh, maybe we don't have this. No, wait till three, they all turn into monsters. You know, it's like this battle for control, mine, no, yes, stubborn, not, you know, and from that moment on, there's this struggle for control. 
you know, at three years old, apparently all of us come to this place where we realize we know what's best for us. I know what I want and I'm going to get what I want. Now, everybody else looking on can see that three-year-old doesn't know what's best and the parent knows, but that three-year-old sure thinks they know what's best. And this kind of battle ebbs and flows. It gets really strong when they hit about 13, 14, 16, you know, kind of rears its ugly head again. But the reality is, if we're honest, in all of our lives, what we can see in others, we can see the struggle in others. We can say, hey, you don't know everything. You should listen. You don't know everything. There's somebody who's above you. We can see it in the lives of others, but so often we can fail to see or to acknowledge that same struggle in our lives. We say, you need somebody else, but no, I've got this. We, we fail to acknowledge this when it comes to the Lord. Now, we, we say, Jesus, you are Savior and you are Lord, but it's a lot easier said than done. We can trust him as Savior, say, yes, Jesus, the only way that I know I will ever get to heaven, that my sins are forgiven, is because of what you did on the cross. You are my Savior. I, I cannot save myself. We, we relish that. We, 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 we rest in that. And we say with our lips, yes, you are Lord, until he starts acting like Lord in our lives. And we can say it, but that's a whole other thing to actually do it so often. And so many times in the life of the believer, it's, it's really over and over coming to this place where we say, Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I say, in fact, you are Lord. We can all say very clearly, loudly, yes, God is number one. And a still small voice in our head says, yeah, but I'm 1B. You know, it's like, we, you know, yes, you're one, but I still have a lot to say. And I think you should take my suggestions and, you know, and... We come to him as Savior, but not so much Lord, but we can't have one without the other. We, we can't have him as Savior, not Lord. He, he's not split in two. He is both, and we must embrace him as both. Listen, not only embrace him reluctantly, but I pray by tonight and in our lives, you would say gladly, cheerfully, yes, no, I don't want to fight. I don't want to, you know, the proverbial like Paul, kick against the goads. I want to submit and surrender to you. It's the best thing ever. We are a people who are afraid to give up control. We have this illusion, really, of control. We're afraid to give up this illusion. We're afraid because if we do, we'll lose our freedom. We'll, it won't be fun. It won't be enjoyable. But what we need to see, and many of us have come to that place, is, no, the most free thing we can do, the, one of the greatest ways that we can actually ever experience the freedom and the joy and the peace and the power and the overcoming and all that we desire is actually in a place where we surrender control when we yield to the commander. And tonight's story is about a great leader. In fact, one of the greatest leaders, one of the greatest generals, one of the greatest men in history, given the responsibility of overseeing millions of people coming to the realization that though he was a commander, he was in fact commanded. Though he was given the task and the responsibility, you no, know, there was a general, there was a leader, one that was ultimately in charge. And the Bible gives you and me, it gives us a lot of different metaphors about a relationship with God. And every one of these metaphors give us an insight into our relationship. He's the shepherd. That makes us the sheep. He's the king, and so we are the subjects. He is, and I love this, he's the groom, and we are the bride. Now, it's always a little bit weird, but I do love the intimacy and the love that he has. I, I love that he is my father, and I'm his son. I love that picture. But the Bible also gives a picture. He's the general, and I'm the soldier. And as general, he gets to give the order. He has the plan. He knows what we're doing. And when he says, flank this side, I say, okay, go. When he says, charge, I say, all right, how hard? Let's go. It's that relationship that Joshua will learn tonight that we have to learn. And I pray for some of us tonight, we might be in the moment of in that place like Joshua was where we desperately need to learn this. And for Joshua here in chapter five, this is a great moment of his life. 
In fact, you could really say all the plot lines of his life are converging to this moment, and I don't have time to recount all that he has been through, but if you know the life of Joshua, there have been many things along the way. Assistant to Moses, many things along the way where he was faithful to Moses, faithful to God, faithful to believe when others doubted, and here he is at this point. They've crossed the River Jordan. They have already you know, experienced victory of Og and Sihon on the east side of the Jordan. God parted the rivers. We saw last week Daniel did a phenomenal job talking about the, the powerful message of Gilgal and of circumcision. And I thought it was so funny as I sat over here and Daniel started talking about circumcision. There was a, 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 a young girl leaned over to her dad and said, Dad, what's circumcision? He got awkward and said, I, uh, uh, mm, ask Pastor Daniel. Anyway, I just... <laughs> But we see how beautiful and actually powerful it is. Daniel did a great job explaining it. So this is where Joshua is at. They've done all that God has asked of them to do. And it, it wasn't as quick as they thought. There's some steps and there's another step, a very important step, a critical step. And so often we're in a hurry, but God's not in a hurry. There are things that he has to do to prepare us for the next thing. And this thing tonight was the thing for Joshua. This convergence, like, like Isaiah, who would many years later in the temple see the Lord high and lifted up at this critical moment in his life. We've already seen in the life of Moses, there's the time of Elijah, Job, and many others, this point of convergence. And I wonder if tonight you're at a point in your own life where the lines are closing, where all these things are coming to a head, and you're at the proverbial wall of Jericho, the impossibility. That's where Joshua literally is at. It says there in verse 13, Joshua is by Jericho. So what this means is Joshua, and this, here's the scene with me. It's nighttime. It's right before the invasion. Joshua is the general, and he's tasked with coming up with a plan to give to the soldiers to implement. And he leaves Gilgal. He leaves the base of operation, and under the cloak of darkness, he makes his way up to the walls of Jericho. Literally, when it says, by Jericho, it wasn't like, we don't know exactly how far, but the, the idea in the Hebrew, the commentator said he was close, or it could even be translated at Jericho. So maybe it's at night where from me to the walls of the fellowship hall over here, that's how close he is. He's surveying these great mighty walls that we know historically were huge chariots raced on top. The very same walls that uh, the two spies had just escaped from not too uh, long uh, before previously. All these things are happening. And as Joshua looks and he's wondering and he's pondering, he's thinking about how will they do this? I can't help but wonder in my own imagination. Did things race through his mind? Did, did the past come into his remembrance of all that they had been through, all that he had experienced? Because Joshua had been there 40 years previously. If you know the story, 12 guys had been sent out. Joshua, along with 11 other men, one of them being Caleb, the only other guy's name we know because he had faith like Joshua, had seen these very same walls and they were so close. And once again, they're close. You know the story the first time they come back and they say, yes, all of them say, man, it's a land full of milk and honey. It's just like you promised God. In fact, the grapes are bigger. And look, they, they had these huge clusters of grapes and they showed and everybody was amazed. But then you know the story, the 10 were like, yeah, but there's giants. There's no way we can do this thing. And Joshua, you know, and Caleb, please don't do this thing. Numbers 14 tells us one of the most tragic stories. Because Joshua and Caleb are exalting the land. They're exalting what God has promised. Yes, it's exactly what God has said. And then the t 10 guys are, yeah, but the people, but the giants, they're like this. We're like grasshoppers. No, no. And Joshua and Caleb are pleading, don't do this. Trust the Lord. They plead and they say, listen, they say, do not rebel against the Lord by being afraid. The Lord is with us. And they say something very powerful. They say rebellion is linked to fear. Your fear is leading to rebellion. They go hand in hand so often if we're not careful. They say, do not let your fear lead to rebellion. 
And sadly, we know the story. They do. Joshua and Caleb plead, God is with us. Eventually, they say, no, 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 you know the story. God shows up. It says, the glory of God appeared, and the discipline of the Lord was enacted. And for 40 years, God declared that generation would not enter his rest. They would not enter the promised land. They would not experience all that God had because they did not, would not, could not believe. And here they are 40 years later, and Joshua wonders, is that same fear lingering around? And here's the thing I believe about Joshua. I think Joshua did have some fear. And I'll see in a moment, I think Joshua is one of the toughest dudes that he ever walked this earth, but I think there was some fear. Why do I say that? Because chapter one, God says three times, Joshua, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Fear not, I am with you. You know, all the, well, why does God say that? God only says that because Joshua was tempted to have fear, right? You don't say something to somebody that they're not struggling with. So I believe Joshua had a little bit of doubt. He's looking at this wall. How are we going to do this thing? And he strategized, he wondered, he planned, he schemed, and I believe he prayed. He remembers the word of God, fear is rebellion. You know, we think of courage sometimes as something we simply have or we don't have, but if we're honest or if we're willing to look at it, I should say more than that, look at what God says. God says, no, it's rebellion. If we act upon it, contrary to what God calls us to do, when we trust in whatever uh, imagination that we have versus the faithfulness of God and what he's done and then he promises to do. And I want to challenge you tonight. I want to make you a little uncomfortable tonight again because we tend to think of fear and courage as like, I have fear, I can't help it. I mean, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. Or I have courage, I'm not afraid of anything. That's not how the Bible describes it. Fear isn't just about what we feel. It's not about the emotion that we experience. It's about what we do. It's what we do and how we choose to respond with that. Joshua was probably afraid the first time, but he chose in faith. And once again, he's at this place and he's praying a nation would trust the Lord. Because fear enacted upon, fear empowered is fear that keeps you from obeying God. That's rebellion, that's sin. Unless you think I'm overstating my case a little bit here, um, Revelation chapter 12 says this, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, The murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, listen, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is a second death. I'm going to back up and let you see the first part. What's the first thing he says there? We think, yeah, unbelieving, of course, vile murderers, sexually. Oh, yeah, those people deserve it. What Cowards, that should not be on the list. If you and I are writing a list of what we think damns somebody to hell, I don't know that we would put cowards. We think, oh, because we're sympathetic. But God says, no, cowards. Cowards are those who choose not to trust, those who do not have faith, those who will not believe and act. Ouch. We saw a whole generation wiped out because of their fear leading to rebellion. Joshua surveys the wall and he wonders, how is this going to be done? Because Joshua, listen, the strategist knows. Again, in fear, it might have been tempting. Maybe some said, again, I'm speculating. Maybe some, well, we can come back to Jericho. But Joshua goes, he knows, no, we've got to deal with Jericho first. We cannot militarily conquer the land. No, there is a great strategy to divide and conquer. That's exactly what happens. We'll talk about it later. But they can't go on to the other places that would have been a lot easier to take out. It, could, it would have been easy. Well, let's get a few battles under our feet. You know, let's, let's get a few victories so we can you know, build some momentum. Let's take out a few of the other small places and then we'll come back and deal with Jericho, the most fortified, established city in the land. But Joshua knows, no, we can't have an enemy at our back. We can't skip this battle. We've got to deal with this now. But Joshua realizes what we don't know at this point. Again, we, we know 
that the walls are going to come down miraculously. But Joshua doesn't know that yet. So we've got to give him a little credit, a little patience, you know. Because we're thinking, Joshua, just march around it seven times and blow a trumpet. It's going to fall, right? Joshua doesn't know that. But he knows, like, wait a minute. To, to take on this city is siege warfare. We're a desert people, a nomadic people. Yeah, we've had some desert skirmishes, but we don't know how to fight like this. We don't have catapults. We don't know how, know how. we don't have the tactics, the engineering, the equipment to deal with a, a, a city like this. We can't really throw enough men at them to overcome the walls. Maybe we can starve them out, but that could take six months, eight months, another year, year and a half while we just wait and linger. That's not a real strategy. And so he's there thinking, praying, pondering. It's there in that place. Remember, he's at Jericho. He's staring at the walls. When all of a sudden, I believe Joshua, he has that feeling like maybe you've had before all of a sudden, you know, you're out by yourself and all of a sudden you just get that feeling like somebody's watching you. You ever had that? Like you just feel like you can just sense that there's eyeballs. And have you ever actually felt that? And then you look up and sure enough, there's somebody there. You're like, oh my gosh, dude, what are you doing? You know? Well, here's Joshua. He's in the middle of the night. He's probably going by stealth. He's praying, he's pondering, he's planning, he's scheming. He's hoping not to be seen. And all of a sudden, his worst nightmare comes true. All of a sudden, there's a person there, not just a person, but a soldier. But more than a soldier, what does he say? It's a soldier with his sword drawn. Listen, you don't have your sword out unless you intend to use it. It would be like having your bow bent. It would be like having, you know, a gun with it, you know, locked and hammered and ready to go. This soldier has a sword drawn. He is ready to strike. Joshua, in that moment, looks up from the walls and sees this soldier. And man, here's where Joshua just goes up in my book. <laughs> because in that moment, I think a lot of us might be going like, holy smokes, you know, like, hey, buddy, how's it going? What you doing? You know, like, just here checking the walls out. You know, Joshua says, Joshua went up. Now, mind you, so we get the picture. Joshua, do you know how old he is at this point? He's at least he's 80, about 80 years of age. We know Caleb, we're, we're told his age. We can figure out the math. He's 85 or right around there. So Joshua's at least about 80 years of age. And yet he's a tough dude. Joshua, it says here, Joshua went up. And the idea wasn't just he like strolled up. He sees this guy and Joshua gets right up. I believe Joshua probably grabs his sword. He's ready to go toe to toe in that moment. And Joshua realizes my life for your life. I don't know what's going on. And he asks the question, gives him two options at that moment. Are you for us or are you against us? You either bow your knee and join us or you're going to feel the cold edge of my sword. I mean, that's like where Joshua's at at this moment. I think Joshua, you know, was like the Chuck Norris of ancient Israel. <laughs> In fact, I don't know if you know this, but they had Chuck Norris jokes about Joshua originally, you know? I mean, those things like Chuck Norris doesn't read books. He stares them down until he gets the information he wants. That's what <laughs> Joshua did. Joshua, like Chuck, had a mug of nails instead of coffee in the morning, you know? Anyway, I can go on and on. I won't bore you with that. I did hear this. Chuck Norris's tears cure cancer. The bad news is he's never cried. <laughs> anyway. I think Joshua was like that. He was a man's man. He was a man who trusted God. He was a man ready for the fight. And he goes up and he asks this question. Are you for us or are you against us? And the way he asks it, you know, it's a, course, it's a question. It reminds me of what George Bush said after the walls, uh, excuse me, the two towers came tumbling down. You're either with us, you're with the terrorists. It was this defining moment. But the response is one that many of us know. We know the story. And the response is not one. Joshua gives him two options and he doesn't answer. A or B. And the response of this soldier is no. 
Are you on this side or are you that side? No. And Joshua's like, what? No. That's not what I asked you. But Joshua, we can see by his response, instantly knows that he's coming to the presence of not just a soldier. He says, no. Some of your translations, like the NIV says neither, but the ESV and New King James translate exactly like it is. It's, it's a direct, very blunt no. You're asking these questions. I'm not going to answer your question. No, but I have come as the commander of the armies of the Lord. And what Joshua does next changes everything. It gives, us, it gives us an insight into who this mysterious person is. Now, some of us know the story, so we're like, yeah, we know who this is. It's Jesus, it's Jesus. But for some of you, are like, yeah, who is this guy? We, we, we see how Joshua responds. Immediately, Joshua hits the dirt. Immediately, he bows. He, he, he submits himself before this person. And every Jewish person knows you would never do this to another human being. You would actually never do this to an angel. You would never do what Joshua does to any created thing. You see, to worship any created thing ultimately brings destruction to that person. That's why the Ten Commandments say, do not have any other idols, do not worship any other gods. Not only is it an affront to God, but God knows it will destroy us. You worship any other thing in your life, even a good thing, make it an ultimate thing, that thing will ultimately destroy you. But Joshua does that. He gives his worship, he gives his allegiance Angels show up at different times. They give messages, Gabriel, Michael. They, 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 they perform duties. They, they, they're sent out by God. Sometimes they fight on behalf of God's people. There's a character that we meet several times in the Old Testament called the angel of the Lord, but he's unlike the other angels. The angel of the Lord is not like Michael. He's not like Gabriel. He doesn't simply give a message. He doesn't just simply fight. But when we encounter the angel of the Lord when he meets Abraham or Gideon or others, we realize we're encountering somebody altogether different. When we encounter the angel of the Lord, the response of every single one of those people is not like what happens when somebody bows before an angel. Now, there's times when we see in the Bible when people meet an angel and they do fall down on their face, but the angel's always very quick to say, get up, don't worship me, worship God kind of tells you something powerful about angels. You know, John's always like, oh my gosh, an angel. The guy's like, get back up, get, you know. But this person allows Joshua to do what Joshua does. The very same way when Jesus allows Thomas to say, you are my Lord and my God, Jesus says, no, 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 because Jesus knows I am God and he receives that worship. This commander allows this worship to take place. In fact, he goes one step further and he says, Joshua, take your sandals off. For the place where you're standing is holy. And every single one of us knows, hey, that sounds really familiar. Of course it does, because that's exactly what happened when Moses encountered God, when, when the, the, the mentor, the leader, the predecessor of Joshua heard the call of God, it was at the famous burning bush, and God said the very same thing, take off your sandals. And I believe here what God is doing, and God is saying to Joshua, Joshua, I promise to be with you like I was with Moses. And that's exactly what is happening. And Joshua would unmistakably know in that moment. And when he says that, oh my goodness, I am in the presence of divine, of divinity. I'm in the presence of holiness, personified. I am in God's presence. And he takes off his sandals and he says, what does the Lord say to his servants? What does Adonai, what does master say? And Joshua takes the right place, the right posture. This great moment in Joshua's life, he's face to face with the one who was really in charge, the commander of Israel's army is face to face with the ultimate commander of heaven's armies and every earthly army, and he bows down and he worships. And I, I wonder tonight, 
before we move on to make this a bit more personal. So it's not just simply a, an ancient story that we're learning and studying, but in our life tonight, I wonder where you're at tonight. Maybe you're at a place of convergence. Maybe it's not nearly as dramatic as a literal, you know, walled city. Maybe you don't have the responsibility of two and a half to three million people, but for you, it feels just as real. So often we compare, well, I don't know that, no, but for you, it, it feels like Jericho. For you, it's just as daunting. For you, it's just as fearful even. And you're at a convergence point in your life and you're not sure, how's my family gonna get on the other side of this? How are we going to move forward? God, how are you gonna see us through this? I don't understand, I don't know. And I believe maybe for some of you tonight, you're at the same point of convergence like Joshua. And at the same thing, what Joshua will need to learn, what you are learning tonight is again, coming to that place of realizing, oh yeah, I'm not the one in control. There is one who is always in control. There is one who has his sword drawn. There's one who commands the angels of the armies of the Lord. He is ever present. He is ever visual, vigil. He is ever at, at, at work. And I wonder tonight, maybe you're at that point. Maybe you're at that point even tonight. You're here tonight. And, and I believe God wants to meet you in the very same way that he met Joshua. And how Joshua responds is what God is asking from you tonight. And what Joshua learns, I pray you learn tonight. I pray all of us learn it tonight because it's a lesson we have to learn over and over again. So we know who the commander is. He's not just an angel. He's not just simply a soldier. No, no, no. This, this commander is, in fact, the angel of the Lord. What we know is the Bible says, uh, reveals to us that this is Jesus in the Old Testament. What the theologians call a theophany or a Christophany. The word theo means God, funny means like epiphany, it's an appearing, it's like all of a sudden a sudden unveiling. And there's times in the Old Testament when this theophany takes place, where God shows up, where God reveals himself. Who is it? It's the second person of the Trinity who is both, listen, he's both the Lord and the way to the Lord. In the great moment of Joshua's life, God shows up. And in the great moment of your life, I believe God shows up and wants to show up in a very powerful, powerful and personal way. So what does the commander demand? Number one, he demands surrender. He doesn't come as someone to get onto our side. Hey, can you get onto my side? That's essentially what Joshua is asking. It's what we always ask. Lord, are you on my side? And yes, on the one hand, God is for us. There's plenty of verses that say, I am for you. He loves us. And of course that, but listen, that's not the concern at this point. And that's not the place where we start. No, it comes to a place of surrender. And what Joshua needs to do is come to a place of surrender and submission. That's what this angel, uh, this soldier is asking. And I'm reminded of Abraham Lincoln's famous words. And it says this, um, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side for God is always right. I think Abraham must have read Joshua chapter five. What do you think? And I think about that today in our, in our country and all the cries, yes, Lord, bless America. I can't help but think, we, yeah, God, be on our side. God's on our side. God's on our side. But are we really asking God, are we on your side? Because yeah. I don't know as a nation that we could authentically say, yes, God, we're on your side. Yeah. As a nation, oh, there's people, sure. But Lord, may we be a nation that truly comes to be on your side. That we ask the question that one of our great leaders did ask, not God, are, we, are you on our side? But Lord, are we in fact on your yeah, side? So you see, so often we come to God because there's a problem. We come to God because there's something in our life. And so we come to him in a moment of crisis and we come to him and we say, Lord, will you fix this? 
Lord, I've heard that you're good. I've heard that you can take problem people like myself in. Yes, that's true. But oftentimes we come with our agendas. We come with a set of terms. We come saying, Lord, fix this. And I'll love you. I'll serve you. I'll follow you. And we have a big if. If you do this, if you make this relationship work out, if you get me out of this financial hole, uh, if you heal me, if you get me from here, I mean, whatever it might be. And we come oftentimes with a list of things that are basically an if, then, and God says, no, 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 no. That's not how I work. And by doing that, we're saying, God, are you on my side? God, I want you on my side. God, what can I do to get you on my side? And we may not overtly do it, but we kind of try to make some bargains, if you will, of trying to get God on our side to bless our plans and get what we want done and accomplished on earth. And God's like, no, no, it doesn't work that way. And this isn't just for people who are brand new to the faith. Listen, this is, this is a challenge for a lot of us because we have a tendency to fall back on this. We have a tendency to forget. Yet, in fact, God, you know you are number one. And so we have to come to this place like Joshua where we move from not only seeing and receiving and worshiping the loving Jesus, but also like Joshua, understanding, no, he's the holy Jesus. He's the Jesus who commands not, oh, get me out of this problem. And listen, he loves to deliver us. He, he's a God of deliverance. He's a God of breakthrough, but it's on his terms. He's not our, our, our co-pilot. He's not our assistant. He's not the magic genie that a lot of people treat him as. No, he's the one to be worshiped and obeyed and adored. He's the one who spoke galaxies into existence. He's the one who said, light be and light was. He's the one who said, Lazarus rise and Lazarus rose. That's not a God you simply invite into your life and try to schedule him you know, once a week. Or, or he's not the God that says, God, you do this, but you don't do that. You come into this part of my life, but you don't touch that part of my life. And God says, no, no, I either come in fully or I don't come in at all. It's not, Lord, are you for me? Are you on my side? Jesus, I come either as Lord of all or I don't come in at all. And you've heard this before, it bears repeating. He's either Lord of all, of everything, or he's not really Lord at all. And that's the place we have to come to again and again and again. No conditions. I think of the two thieves on the cross. Remember the two thieves? In that moment, when they could have been saved, and one was, one had conditions. If you really are the Christ, if you really are the Son of God, prove it to me, and I'll believe in you is kind of what he's saying. Get me off of this cross. Get off the cross, and I'll believe in you. Okay, if then. The other one just says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. No conditions. I just want to be where you are. Wherever you are, I, I've encountered your presence. I'm here hanging on this cross, and I, I know you are not like any other person that's ever walked. You're, you're definitely no criminal. And he comes into this presence there, and he encounters a, a, a Jesus who is more than just a man. He, he realized, no, you are God. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. No conditions, absolute surrender. Practically, that means in all of our ways, Lord, command me. That means in every part of my life, holy. Lord, be holy even as I am holy. That means every part. It's a life of purity. Purity means what I watch, what I listen to. It's a life of holiness. Lord, where do I spend my money? Where do I give my money? God, what do you say? Lord, here's my finances. Am I trusting you? My time, my pleasure, you know, the things I, I do in my life. For, for, Lord, it's, it's all, it all belongs to you, God. Not, Lord, you get everything, but every other week, and I get to do whatever I want. You know, I get to go, like, listen, I say that not as... A, a, a means to instill fear and you're like, oh man, I guess I got to do it. What Joshua will discover and we'll get there is like, it's the best thing you could possibly do. The very thing we're so afraid of, the moment we say yes, it's the greatest thing that we could ever experience in our life. If you're going to get the victory in your life, 
the one that you're seeking after, the one that Joshua desperately needed, you have to come to this place where you're submitted, where you surrender, where you're trusting God. And God may give you the craziest strategy, and Daniel's going to talk about it next week, the strategy we all know, it's nuts. Don't let anybody tell you there's, there's no scientific this and that. Well, they did this, and the tremors did this, and this, and you know, it's like, it was crazy. It was crazy then, it was crazy now, but it was God's strategy. And there's things in your life that God will ask you to do that people go, that's nuts. <laughs> yeah, but that's what his word says. Yeah. What do you mean you're going to wait till you're married? That's crazy. You can't wait till you're married. You got to like see if you're compatible. No, I'm going to trust the Lord. That's what God says. What do you mean 10%? You can't live. I mean, 10%, that's a lot of money to give to God. What are you talking? Hey, God says, if I do this, he promises to bless. That's I mean, I could go on and on and on, things that don't make sense, let alone the things that he speaks just personally. Go, go share with that person. Go pray for that person. Do that. Lord, I don't know. I get, he says, am I Lord or not? Okay, God, yes, I'll go do what you've asked me to do. <laughs> we have to come to a place where we're willing to lose our agendas, desire for control, because God does speak. And what he speaks there, you know, it's, there's this bridge. He says, speak, Lord, for your servant here. He takes off his sandals. Verse one of chapter six is a little parenthesis about Jericho being shut up. But then in verse two, this commander speaks. And what does he speak? It's, see, I've given Jericho in your hands. And Daniel will go into next week, that strategy and that plan and that action that they go in and ultimately obey and employ. But Joshua said, speak, Adonai, for your servant hears. But notice here in verse two, and it says, and the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Joshua understood that who was speaking. It wasn't just a soldier. Again, the capital L-O-R-D means it's the personal name of God, Yahweh. Again, Joshua knew who he was encountering. No conditions, absolute surrender to the Lord. As I was preparing this message, I came across something I, I had read. It struck me about a year and a half ago. And I just thought it was, you know, hit me again hard. And, you know, as we pray and just desire God to work and we desire God to to move as we pray for revival. We look at revivals in history. There, there's a quote that struck me and I thought about it again today and I'll share it with you. But it was a guy by the name of Sam Storms. He's a pastor. And he said this, we say we want revival, but so often we want it on our terms. We don't pray this way, but this is what our hearts are saying to God. Come Holy Spirit. But only if you promise in advance to do the things the way we've always done them in our church. Come Holy Spirit, but only if I have some sort of prior guarantee that when you show up, you won't embarrass me. Come Holy Spirit, but only if your work of revival is one that I can still control and one that preserves intact the traditions with which I am comfortable. Come Holy Spirit, but only if your work of revival is neat and tidy and dignified and understandable and above all else, socially acceptable. Come Holy Spirit, but only if you plan to change others. Only if you make them to be like me, only if you convict their hearts so they will live and dress and talk like I do. Come, Holy Spirit, but only if you let us preserve our distinctives and retain our differences from others whom we find offensive and on and on he goes. In fact, I read something very similar um, from James Boyce, a Presbyterian. He's almost said the same thing. I feel like, wow, God, you're saying something. You know? So often we like, do it this way, God, do it, do it, do it. But it, this is how I want you to do it, Lord. And God says, Joshua, here's my plan. And his plan was never enacted again. And we look at revivals in history and they're all different. You know, God, he did it this way one time, he did it this way another time. And we can glean from that. We can pray, we can look. But what we can pursue is the general, the commander, the one who wants to show himself strong on behalf of his people and say, Lord, do it again. Do it however you want to do it. Stretch me, trust me. I, I look into your word. What do you say? I want to be guided by your spirit, by your word. But Lord, I also don't want to put you in any box that I know I have a tendency to put you in. I surrender to you. 
Finally, does he not only ask for our, our surrender, but also our worship? Ask for our worship. When Joshua sees, he immediately hits the deck. I already said this. He demonstrates surrender physically. In fact, the word there for worship is an interesting word. It's the Hebrew word shakah. There's a few different words uh, in the Old Testament that are used for worship that have to do with praise and singing. But the most common word for worship, it was used in Genesis 18, but in Genesis 18, it was simply translated as bowing. Abraham bowed before the visitor. But that word is shakah. In Genesis 22, when Abraham went up to the mountain, Mount Moriah, and he brought Isaac, it's the first time in our English Bibles that the word worship is translated. But again, when Abraham goes up to the mountain to worship, it's the Hebrew word shakah. Here again, Joshua bows and he prostrates himself. He worships, it's that word shakah. Literally, that's what it means to prostrate oneself. It's a physical act of saying, Lord, I, I bow my will. Physically, I bow my body to demonstrate, I worship you. And there are other contexts where this word worship does have to do with singing. It does have to do with this. But this is this idea of worship. Joshua worships what God is after with worship. Listen, when God is, what he's after, he's after our hearts. Why is worship so important? We're, we're meant to worship. We're created to worship. What is God after? He's not like, he's not an egomaniac. It's like, I need you to worship me. I need you to tell me how much you, you need me and love me. You know, like, no, no, no. Why does he invite us to worship? Because he knows it's the best thing for us. He's after our hearts. So Joshua worships the Lord. That's what he's after for us, surrender and worship. Finally, I'll move on and we'll go into a time of communion in just a moment. We see who the commander is. We see what the commander demands. But what does the commander promise? Listen, the commander promises his presence. Where God is present, his power is present. And essentially, that's what Joshua discovers the physical presence of God, Joshua realizes from that moment, wait a minute, God is with us. Joshua thought, I, I know God's with us. He's there, but not like with Moses. But from that point on, Joshua realized, no, God is with us. He's actually fighting for us. In that moment, Joshua is keenly aware and forever aware that he's not the one in control. And I believe that was a great relief. <laughs> it was the greatest relief. In fact, when we finally realized, wait, you know what? I'm not in control. Praise God, you are in control. The very thing that we're so afraid to give up when we realize, wait a minute, you're in control. It's actually the biggest relief. Joshua realized, wait, God, you are present. And you are present, you are present in power. Why? The Lord was present with his sword drawn. What does that mean? It means that God was saying, I'm ready to fight. I'm not ready to fight you, Joshua. I'm ready to fight if you don't listen and surrender, you know. But more than that, what he's saying, Joshua, I'm ready to fight on behalf of my people. Joshua, I'm with you. My sword is drawn. You're, you're commanding a physical army, but there's an army that you cannot see that I will be commanding that will be fighting for, for you and for my people. Uh, Jacob came and encountered a place and he named that place Mahanaim when he encountered God and he's called it two camps. He realized there was an earthly camp, but there's always a heavenly camp, a camp of angels, a camp of heavenly hosts. Joshua became aware of this. Years later, Elisha, the prophet, would be aware of this too. You remember he's surrounded at Dothan and the prophets, you know, his, his servants like freaking, oh my gosh, there's, there's armies all around, there's armies all around. And Elisha says, God, open his eyes. And all of a sudden it's like blinks, blinks. And all of a sudden he sees, what does he see? That second host. The angel armies all around, commanded by who? Commanded by Jesus. That's what Joshua discovers. Listen, the battle didn't just disappear. For you and me, the battles don't just disappear. But what we discover in these moments when we surrender and when we worship is that God is with us every moment, in every struggle, in every opportunity. He's not sitting back wondering, wondering how they're going to do with this one. 
Hope they make it out alive. Hopefully they learn what I taught them. Let's see. No, he's a God who's present, who's active, whose sword is drawn. When you submit to general Jesus, when you say Jesus, you are Savior and Lord, he's going to command you. He will command your life. He will come and take control. But that's the greatest thing that you could ever ask for is a God who comes in and says, yes, I'm going to take control. Jesus is a brilliant commander, and his strategies are not your strategies. His ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. But you get to come to a place and say, you know what? They're not, and I'm okay with that. And in fact, I'm glad because basically a lot of times my strategies have basically left me broken and frustrated and like it doesn't work. So Lord, come and command. I yield. I bow my knees. Surrender. I surrender to you. Is it fearful to give up control? Yeah, it can be. It's one of the biggest things that we, we wrestle with. But don't let rebellion become sin when you let your fear lead you to the place where you refuse to do what God has asked of you to do. Fear is not something that we can just talk away. We can't just rationalize it away. No, fear, the Bible says in 1 John, fear has to be cast out. How is it cast out? Perfect love casts out all fear. When we realize this, and here's where we close. When we, when we leave Joshua chapter five, we see the story about a soldier with a sword drawn. And how can we gladly, cheerfully, humbly say, yes, Jesus, I submit to you because we realize the Bible talks about another sword. There in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned and when they were kicked out of the garden, there was two angels with a flaming sword placed at the entrance. The way back to the presence of God, back to paradise, was blocked. And the, the whole idea was to pass through these gates, a sword was going to come down. What does Calvary teach us? What is the gospel? That ultimately there in Gethsemane, Jesus wrestled it out and he finally submitted and surrendered and worshiped and said, I give up control, your will be done. And Jesus surrendered to the Father's will. And not only that, but ultimately on Calvary, we know the, the nails pierced his hands, the crown of thorn pierced his head, the, the, the nail pierced his feet, and ultimately a, a spear pierced his side. But there was also something that we may not have seen, that those who there weren't seen, but there was a, a sword of God's judgment that came down upon him, the, the wrath of God. And what, what happened when that sword came down, the veil was torn in two, and the way back to paradise was open. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? We can trust this general Jesus who has the sword because he was the one who took the sword for us. Who, who we can experience the presence of God. Joshua got to encounter the presence of God. Listen, the presence of God for us is, it's open. The, the way into the Holy of Holies is open. We can come into the presence without fear. We boldly can come into the presence of one who wields the sword because this one ultimately had the sword piercing him. This commander is the most powerful person in the universe, but this commander loves you with a perfect love. And this is not a commander that you simply, again, invite into part of your life, but he's a commander that you say, Lord, come all the way in. You are Savior. You are Lord. I bow the knee. Command me. Father, we thank you so much for this night. Lord, I don't know where all of us are at. Maybe some of us are at a convergence point in our life. If not today, if not this week, we know many of us will be there again at some point, probably soon, where we're wrestling with the same thing over and over again. And I pray we would learn the lesson quicker, quicker Lord, we would simply say, yes, Jesus. What are you saying? Whatever, wherever, however, whenever, 
The answer in advance is yes. Holy Spirit, we thank you for opening our eyes to the word of making this ancient story real and powerful and practical to us right now. And Holy Spirit, help us to see, to know, to love Jesus. That's your job. That's what you delight to do. Holy Spirit, we, we want to love Jesus. We want to see Jesus. We need to see Jesus. <laughs> I think of the Gospels when they came and Andrew said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Or that's the cry of our heart. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Jesus, we wish to see you tonight. We wish to encounter you, to meet with you afresh and anew tonight. To surrender to Shekhar, to bow the knee, to bow the heart, to bow and yield our wills to you. To surrender and say, Jesus, you are Savior and you are Lord. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.